This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 145, and this is another installment of Classic Rebel Radio, where we are revisiting episodes from the past while I'm on maternity leave. Today, we are revisiting the interview I did with Lindsay Averill and Viri Lieberman, the creators of the movie Fatitude, a documentary that exposes how popular culture fosters fat prejudice and then offers an alternative way of thinking. We're chatting about fat acceptance, thin privilege, and body positivity, and why they created Fatitude to change our culture to eradicate size prejudice. Plus, I'll be answering a listener question on what to do if your partner is still subscribing to conventional beauty standards. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 145. Before we begin, let me give a shout out to Ashley12345, who left this review. Love summer. Great podcast. Amazing. See, leaving a review literally takes 10 seconds. And you can do that by heading to iTunes, searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating. And don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes or whatever platform you use that helps others to find the information you are learning here. And if you haven't already done so, grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. So before we roll with this episode. I'm going to answer a listener question, but I also just want to mention that since this episode first aired back in 2016, Fatitude is now out. It's premiered and you can host screenings for it or look for where a screening may be aired in your area. So you can check out their website, fatitudethemovie.com, which will be linked in the show notes for that. And they are still looking for donations to support, I think, the promotion of the movie, I'm guessing, and getting it out into broader audiences. So that's awesome. I highly recommend checking that movie out. This question comes from Aaron. Thank you so much for all the great work you're doing. I ha- I'm having some trouble navigating the following. My boyfriend is very supportive of my recovery from an eating disorder and the body changes that have come with it as I grieve the loss of my thin body. As I delve deeper into releasing my attachment to what my body looks like and begin to say F you to society's beauty standards, I am aware that while he supports me, he still prescribes to those standards of beauty for himself and others. I don't see that changing for him. I'm concerned that his views are impacting my ability to really let go. Do you have any thoughts on this or wisdom to share? Okay, so great question here, because I think a lot of us start this work when we are already in a relationship and we are going through this evolution and this process and our partners are 
are observing us, but they're not doing the same work that we're doing. So we are doing, we are going through this process as Melissa Toller calls it of unlearning. So unlearning all the bullshit and starting to really challenge those beliefs and learn the truth about health and weight and the truth about our value as human beings, that it does not lie in our appearance. And our partner is not doing that. They are, they're kind of observing, they're a bystander, they're not going through the same process. And so for a lot of us, that process involves a lot of reading, a lot of educating, a lot of inner work, maybe therapy or coaching or doing some kind of a program to support you in that. And our partner is not doing those things. So we tend to go through this at a much faster pace than they are. And in order for them to support us, we have to invite them into that process. And it can be really beneficial to ask them to participate in that process. So I think it's a matter of having a conversation with your partner and saying, you know, I'm really working hard to heal my relationship with food or whatever it is that he, however you want to word it, or I'm working really hard to see my value outside of my body. I really want to be confident. I want to be happy in this body. Are you willing to support me in that? And hopefully they are. And then we can say, okay, here's what you can do to support me. And you can word it however you want, but ultimately you want them to be challenging the internal biases that they have. And I'm hoping most people's partners do want to support them and will link arms with them and go through some of this process with them. This isn't always the case. Sometimes we have to do this independently and kind of just be the change we want to see. And instead of trying to convince our partners that this is what they should be doing. But at the same time, I think there's some little things that we can do to help them unlearn and learn in order to better support us and just see the broader picture, like see the cultural picture of this, you know, to help them understand that it's the culture that does this to us. It's the culture that marginalizes bodies and that has a direct impact on our confidence and our self-worth and our ability to really succeed. And I mean, I would hope that they would want to be better allies to help change that once they've been exposed to that as well. So for my, my advice is for you to talk to him about this and see if he's open, open to learning in an effort to support you. And let's assume he says yes, then there are a few ways you can do this. You know, it's kind of the same thing that I would introduce people to if they're starting uh, out on this on their own. So listening to some podcasts. So help him pick out some ones that really show how subscribing to standards of beauty is oppressive to women. And maybe even if it's just stories of, of other individuals that, you know, any podcast episode that really spoke to you, maybe just have, see if he's, he's open to listening to, to some of those. There's books. So Body Respect by Linda Bacon or The Body Is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor, both amazing books and good introductions to health at every size, as well as how hurtful our culture is to marginalized bodies. Have him follow people on social media talking about this. You know, some people are going to, it's probably going to seem really radical to him and that's okay. Um, but there's, I mean, there's like, you know, there's baby step ways too. Like maybe it's introducing him to the movie Embrace, which I think is a, is a good sort of gateway into this that is less radical than, uh, say like the work of Virgie Tover, you know what I mean? Which, I mean, I would just expose him to Virgie Tover too, but I think if you feel like he needs a baby step, then maybe here's the movie Embrace. That's a good place to start with that. But yeah, have him follow people on social media talking about this, have him look at images of people in diverse bodies. And like, this isn't so he starts to find them attractive, although he might, which is cool. Great. 
<laughs> you know, it's highly likely, but rather it's so that he sees body, that body diversity is real because he's only been exposed to unrealistic images of women, you know, whether that's through pornography, maybe, or just like magazines that exploit women like Sports Illustrated or Maxim magazine. Do they even still make that? I don't know. But <laughs> just the way that women are portrayed in this in the media as, you know, these sex objects and how men have been trained to see women as like these sexual objects, we want to try and help him like see it through a different light and see how that's so harmful to women and see that diversity is is really does exist and it's real and that not everyone looks like that so that so that's a great exercise if he's open to that too and I would also just have him follow Matt McGorry because I think that's a man who really kicks ass as an ally and I think that you know people can learn a few things about how to be a good ally from following him and and that, so that's a starting point if he's open to it. And I would also recommend couples therapy if this is taking a toll on your recovery or your relationship. Like if this is stalling you, if this truly is preventing you from letting go, then therapy together for sure, because you've got to have someone kind of navigate, help you navigate these conversations. And maybe it's someone, um, a therapist who is, uh, you know, specializes in body image or is, is, is health at every size informed that can help you to navigate those conversations. And in the end, you have to advocate for yourself and your well-being. You know, does he want a partner who is engaging in disordered behaviors out of fear? Or does he want a body positive partner who is confident and content with who she is? I would really hope it's the latter. And I really hope that for you in this situation too. All right. So maybe have him listen to this episode because it's fatitude and it's amazing. And I think <laughs> there's so much amazing information in here about uh, size pre prejudice and thin privilege and things like that. And I remember when I recorded it, I was like, I cannot even get a word in because <laughs> these two <laughs> will not stop talking, but it was in the best way. Sometimes those are my favorite interviews when I just get to listen and the guests are super fired up. So I think you're going to love this interview with Lindsay and Viri. Enjoy it. Hey everybody, I am really excited to be here today because I am talking to the women behind Fatitude the movie, Lindsay Averill and Viri Lieberman. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. So, Fatitude, a documentary that exposes how popular culture fosters fat prejudice and then offers an alternative way of thinking. That's what it's all about. I would love to know what inspired you to create this movie it's so funny because right before we came on your podcast today viri and i were having a conversation that's totally in relation to this um we fatitude is originates the kernel of fatitude originates with my dissertation research so i started working on representations of um women's bodies in teen media and particularly fat bodies. And I, the more I worked on that research, the more I was like, okay, this is really interesting, but this problem is not just about teenage women. This is a problem that is carried out into everyone in the world of every gender, of every uh, sexual persuasion, of every race, color, creed, everyone is dealing with questions of fat hate and fat phobia. And I got, you know, very sidetracked and started thinking like it's, I, you know, writing some academic paper about this is not enough. 
And so Viri and I spent a lot of nights. We are very good friends. We've been very good friends for a long time. And we spent a lot of nights with me sort of lamenting about this. And, and also, as a side note, talking about how we wanted someday as two feminist activists to make a film together. And one day, those two ideas just converged. I don't exactly know when that particular moment was, but <laughs> but we all of a sudden we were making this film, and we just you know it was something we sort of that sort of like came to being over bottles of wine, kind of a thing. And then mm-hmm. I pursued the idea of us doing a couple of interviews and seeing if it would work. And I went up to visit Viri in New York, and we filmed a couple of interviews, which were uh, Substantia Jones and Claire Misko, and after those two interviews, there was no doubt, no question anywhere on in any way that not only were we going to make a full length film, but we were going to make a very important, exciting film about fat activism, fat hate, fat acceptance, all of these, these sort of, you know, big buzzwords, body positivity, right. Uh, that, that really wasn't being made because it wasn't a film about how women should be welcomed you know, plus size models should be welcomed on the scene. It was a film about how the culture needs to change and stop being cruel and systemically prejudiced towards people living in larger bodies. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So good. And so I'd love to backtrack a bit, bit and just hear each of you talk about your, your own story and your own experience and, and what, what, what really drove you personally to be so connected to this cause. I mean, I'll, as we, as Lindsay was just sharing, this kind of all came from her research. So I was very new to all of this whole world. I mean, my God, unlocking the doors to a fantasy land of beautiful, beautiful body acceptance. And it was so great. Fatitude for me, I mean, it's changed my life because prior to learning about all of this and starting to make this film, I definitely always had a, a very not troubled, but complicated relationship with my body. I fluctuated a lot. I was an athletic kid. And, um, and then I went through a period of my life where I, uh, gained a lot of weight and then I still was athletic and fluctuated and anyways, back and forth. And I've definitely had my, my days of crying and and dressing rooms and such. Mm -hmm. But, uh, so I was, you know, kind of this interesting thing where I also, as a, as a lesbian, there's a lot of parts of my identity. There's a lot of intersections. And within that, I never really feel like I fit anywhere. Like I'm not comfortable in a suit. I'm not comfortable in a dress. I don't fit into anything that I, I can't even really fit into just jeans and a t-shirt in a way that I had felt comfortable before. And it was, it was a mess. And what Fatitude did for me was allow me to just be in all of those intersections. It was Mm. so interesting because it really is applicable to everything, even though the focus is obviously bodies, um, that is everything, right? Like our bodies are our bodies. So there's something it was. So for me, my personal journey is, is more about everything culminating in my identity, gender, body, everything, all of that coming together through fatitude. And for me, I, you know, I lately, Lindsay and I always talk about, you know, speaking your truth. And when we started Fatitude, I started to become really conscious about my visibility and being out there and being honest when I'm having, you know, when I'm struggling or when I, when I'm trying to find that, um, that place of acceptance, but also being really aware and kind of 
grabbing the horns and being like, yeah, I'm going to be out there and be this bigger body. Like right now I'm training for a bike ride and I love, I wear the spandex outfit, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am on that bike. I am big (laughs) and I am whizzing by everybody and it feels so freeing. And I'm sensitive to the idea that people are seeing me as, as quote unquote, in their kind of socially constructed mind, an alternative body riding so much all the time. But I love it. And so within that, you know, like within everything in Fatitude, I think the thing that happens that's most exciting to me is being able to spread that message of a spectrum of bodies. And for me personally, it's just given me a lot of great checkpoints. Or on a daily day when I have to go shopping for clothes or when I'm riding my bike or when all of those things, if anything creeps up, because clearly it's not like you can just flip the switch on a mat, you know, easily to, to start loving and accepting your body fiercely. But I have definitely been educated through this movement and all of the people we've met, especially in our interviewees, to be able to check myself and be like, oh, what? Why am I wasting any energy worrying about this? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of been a really beautiful part of the journey. I I mean, my, like I said, mine, I didn't have, you know, it's all relative. I was going to say, I yeah. don't have enormous stories myself about, you know, being bullied or tortured or yeah. anything in that way about my body as most people do that we meet. Right. But well, that doesn't think, mean that I haven't had my own struggles. So Of course. Yeah. 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 Well, and I also think I have a more traditional experience in terms of living in a fat body. I think there's a really, there's something really significant about not growing up in a fat body, which is something that Veri had, right. Veri was very athletic as a young person. And she, you know, didn't really live in a fat body until she was in adulthood. Whereas, you know, when you grow up in a fat body, there's a lot of bullying that comes with that and sort of builds, you know, a space in which you, you, uh, sort of recognize the bullying you're, you're, that's coming at you all the time. Yeah. You know, like I, Um, uh, you know, I was, I think I was on my first diet when I was six and, and unlike, you know, the average person having a discussion about going on a diet when they were six, which painfully so is average for a fat person. Um, I, I asked to go on the diet, which is unusual. So I begged my parents to put me on a diet, uh, at the age of six. Yes. At the age of six. Wow. Because I felt, because I was already being teased so mercilessly. And I think that I was probably, uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 pounds heavier than my counterparts, but at six years old and you know, what, what are you three feet and change, right? You mm-hmm. 10 or 15 pounds makes a big difference. And, and there was, you know, definitely I was sort of the fat little girl and I was already I was already aware of that. I was already being told that wasn't acceptable by my peers. Um, and then I, you know, I was a chronic cyclical dieter. So if you look at my life, I basically, you know, I, if you look at the photographs of my life, I basically go in and out of being chubby, right? Like, cause I was always, always dieting. And then somewhere around, um, well, and terrible dieting. So I, you know, I reached the point where in my twenties I was doing liquid diets and things like that. Uh, things like OptiFast where I would lose 60 pounds and then promptly turn around and gain 60 pounds back, which is terrible for your body. Yeah. Um, I was also a, you know, religious calorie counter and the more you diet, the more you cyclically diet, the more, the less calories you can eat and lose weight. So by the time I really took a look at what I was doing to my body. I was having days where I ate 400 and 500 calories a day. Um, which would be considered an eating disorder. It, 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, I, it, I would never, I don't think, I, I was... I was enacting the practices of an eating disorder, absolutely. But the ease in which I gave that up marks the idea that I wasn't dealing with the control issues that we often see with things like anorexia and bulimia, right? right? right. So, so, but I was practicing in a way that was such disordered and dysfunctional eating. And I was absolutely attaching that to my self-worth, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if I ate 500 calories a day, I was a success that day. And if I ate 700 calories the next day, the day before was a more successful day, right? I was a better person the day before, right? So uh, that's a terrible practice. No one should do that. Please don't mimic me, right? So right. Some, somewhere around my 30s, I, uh, I would say my early 30s, I'm 38 now. So somewhere around 30, I got married and about in the first two years of my marriage, I would go back and forth between that behavior and being like, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? Right. And, um, and I would say by the, by the time I was 33, I gave up dieting completely. So right. Or maybe 32, right around the, right within two years of, of launching fatitude, I had joined the fat acceptance movement and realized that that was terrible practices and that I needed to walk away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't really been on a diet since then. I don't think that diets are healthy for people. I think that loving your body and giving your body healthy, healthy is a questionable word, but I think that feeding your body food, foods that are high in nutrients like fruits and vegetables and, you know, uh, not, you know, hearty, good value laden foods that are going to, feed your cells is a great idea. I think, uh, I exercise regularly, much like Viri. So I'm a swimmer. I swim, um, I swim about 180 laps a week and I also take Pilates and yoga. And I think using your body is magical. And I think you should use your body. I think you should use it in ways that make you feel happy and comfortable. I don't think there's some right way to use your body either. And I think that the biggest issue that we see with fat phobia and fat hatred in our culture is this belief that sort of fat bodies are not capable of anything. And when I say anything, I mean, not capable of athletics, not capable of eating healthy, not capable of doing work or being productive, not right. Like we, we, we sort of corner fat bodies as like lazy willpowerless blobs. Mm -hmm. And the, and the reality of it is that's just, well, for lack of a better way to say it, that's a load of shit and a big fat lie. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, mm-hmm. and I used the word fat there on purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, and you know, that I learned in my life that that's what that meant as a, as a child. Right. And, and I tortured myself for the first quarter of my life. Right. And I, in a way, and I thought of myself as less valuable than my thin counterparts for the first quarter of my life. And so if I'm lucky enough to have all four quarters, I'll spend the last three quarters recognizing that the most important thing you do every day is like yourself. Right. And I was, I was going to say that, um, I, the science experiment with myself kind of happened without me doing it on purpose. Right before we started Fatitude, I was training for a really big ride and I was riding like four hours a day. I mean, it was crazy. I was riding like a crazy person and I was eating 
really minimally because I felt like losing weight was a part of that. Like mm-hmm. I, for some reason I felt like in order to train for the ride, I had to lose some weight too. And I did, I lost a lot of weight, but I, the only way I was able to do that was by doing the most like unhealthy ride for four hours and eat like smart ones or whatever. Oh my goodness. And it was like terrible. It was terrible. And, uh, it was like the, the closest I ever got. And to me, it was just a part of my training. I mean, it wasn't really, um, and now when I look back at it, I think I have ridden since then really heavily all the time and my body doesn't like change that much or lose a lot of weight and I realized that like it didn't add anything to the strength of my riding and the only way I would ever be quote-unquote thin is if I you know starved myself and rode all day every day and that's not a life I want to live anyways right like that's not fun that's not great certainly not healthy so I've now you know, that was a huge part of my body acceptance where I was like, Oh, I'm just going to ride my bike and I'm going to live my life. And whatever my body falls in that realm, well, however it looks is how it's supposed to look. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, yeah. and that's like, you're not, you can't, con- you cannot control it. You can't, it's not about no. that also. Well, and you don't need so, to, that's the really yeah, important thing. Exactly. You don't need to. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I really want to reinforce that point is that both of you have, have alluded to, um, no longer trying to manipulate your, your weight and control your weight. And I think, you know, that, I mean, what are your thoughts? Does that go, that go hand in hand with, with body acceptance? Well, I think that, you know, again, Viri and I are classically academically trained feminists. So we're going to come down always. We're going to err no matter what on the idea that your body is yours and you have to make the decisions about it. Right. So how you learn to love your body is your journey. And I can't prescribe the way my journey worked for you. Mm -hmm. But for me, without a doubt, I have found that evaluating my relationship to food and changing the way that I interacted with food, like thinking about food instead as this magical, like amazing thing that helps my body be strong and vital was, uh, you know, and approaching food from that direction absolutely made it so that uh, my relationship with food was not about punishment. And so, you know, now I would say to you, uh, do I eat healthier than, than I may have in a different point in my life? I think I probably do because mm-hmm. I have a tendency to look at food and think of it not as good or bad, but as like, what do I need today? What makes me feel good today? Right? So my relationship with food is much more about how my body reacts to food than how, you know, than some kind of crazy, you know, like moral, you know, satisfaction, dissatisfaction, you know, weird sort of worth. Yeah. But also like emotional relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also like the joy of food. See, there's another layer to this that came in my personal body acceptance where I was like, with that conversation of morality with food, good, bad, all that is also like, food can be wonderful. Like I'm a total, we're food, we're foodies. Lindsay and I are foodies and food. When we travel, sometimes we travel by food. Like you go to a place and you want to try the local food and you want to taste things and you want to enjoy like the true mesmerizing magic that is flavors and combinations and food. And we fear people fear it. People Mm -hmm. fear food. And it's, and it's because they really do only look at it as fat making and thin making and good and bad and all of those things that Lindsay's talking about. And that's, and so my personal body acceptance, another part of that was being like, 
oh, I want to eat this. I'm going to eat it, you know, yeah. and it's not. And <laughs> right. that's that's a really odd, simple well, thing and, that is incredibly freeing. And if you catch if you catch Viri and I at a dinner table with people who are not body positive and somebody saying like, you know, the waiter comes up to the table and they say like, you know, can I get you a dessert menu? And somebody's like, oh, I would, but I can't. You know, Viri yeah. and I are, Viri and I look at each other and we're like, why, is your mouth broken? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. who yeah. says I, you can't? I can't you. What, like, yeah. can we, can we, can we work that out? Let me put my, yeah. you know, chin on my hand and lean here at like the thinker and be like, really? Really? Why can't you? Yeah. Like, what, yeah, I mean, I mean, to, yeah. for a while I was defiant. Like, even if I didn't want dessert, if someone at the table was like, Oh, I'm trying to be good today. I'd be like, we'll take a dessert menu. Like I was just doing it to make a point to people for a while, just because I was like, that's silly. Um, everybody, but what Lindsay said, I agree with, we do believe the old, you know, my body, my business. And if it is, you do with it what you want, but I want you to always think about why you're doing what you're doing. Because like, that's the, that's what it is. It's not so much about like what you want to do. Just ask yourself why you're doing it. And if it really is for you. I do think it's, well, I also do think it's a really, it's a really never a black and white question. And that's like all made really complicated issues, right? So if you're someone who's dealing with binge eating disorder, right, you're going to have to think about what you eat in a different way than someone who's just dealing with disordered eating, Mm -hmm. right? So that, you know, there, there are extremes of eating disorder in which sort of cataloging what we eat and thinking about what we eat are, are are necessary in the journey towards healing, right? There are also um, people who are, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, specific, there's something like five medical disorders that are affected by weight, right? So, um, you know, if, if you asked the plant, if you asked, you know, your average doctor, they'd tell you that every medical disorder is affected by weight. And that's not really true. Right. But there are, there are, there's something I, um, you know, some joint disorders get better if you have weight loss because you're not putting as much weight on the joint. There are some, you know, there are some issues that there's a, um, I have a friend who has a disorder where she, her brain thinks that she has a brain tumor, but she doesn't have a brain tumor. And it's clinically proven that losing weight reduces the problem with that. And people who have that problem are actually like going blind and they're having, you know, very, very, um, complicated issues happening to them. And they, you know, a 15% weight loss changes the relationship to that. Now, the thing that I'm, the thing that has to be made very clear here is science has not proven that weight loss works long-term at all. Right. So we don't actually know how to lose weight. We Mm -hmm. think we do. Right. And so the, you know, the, I think it's, it's a really complicated thing to talk about weight loss and dieting. And I think you really need to understand that, you can't just say, yes, diets are bad. No one should ever be on a diet. That's a terrible idea. Let's have no diets. I can tell you diets are bad for me, Lindsay Averill. I should never be on a diet. It's a terrible idea, right? And that it doesn't work for me and there's no science behind it for somebody who's in my situation, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. it's, it's very particular to an individual. And, and I kind of hate anytime we make a universal stroke, but I think that we can on some level be like, for most people, diets are bad. Right? Well, like, yeah. Well, and the word diet is really yeah, yeah, yeah. spectrum. Yeah. And so it's I not think, like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, the vast majority of, of people yeah. go into intentional weight loss to, to receive 
privilege, you know, like to, to, because, because of the belief that, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be able to control my destiny. I'm going to be able to control the way that people react to me and I'm going to protect myself from emotional harm by losing weight. And so I think that, yeah, there, there's obviously cases where, um, it, it would be helpful for certain medical conditions. Again, knowing that it might not work because right. there's no long-term proof. But I think for, you know, for the vast majority, especially as it relates to, you know, talking about eradicating size discrimination, um, it, weight loss the, and this idea of weight loss contributes to further size discrimination. Oh, yeah. I mean, the diet so industry is not a $60 billion industry because every doctor on the planet is telling you something. Like, no, it's a, it's no. because it's, it's image, it's representation, yeah. it's vanity. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. So that is... And that's when we talk, you know, coming back to fatitude. I mean, that is, it's, you know, the roots, the roots of that. And the reality of that, of course, is that the the diet industry is, I'm going to go ahead and go with that industry is an abomination that should be regulated. (laughs) Yes. Right. Like it's, that is a giant mess that is, that is literally capitalizing on people's, um, self lack hate. of self-lack yeah right. self-hate. self-hate yeah right. like it's yeah. it's just it's it's appalling and and the fact that we somehow as a culture have have um categorized the diet industry as for our own good is terrifying right anything that in the fine print says oh and p.s you could die right like <laughs> it's is not a good option mm-hmm. right like there are more side effects to dieting than there are to being fat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? yeah, like, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy, and I, you know, and we really do like the the health narrative is out of hand right now. I mean, people, it's just become this like really manipulated, vulnerable space where people can project whatever they want. It's become like this really like people are literally claiming science and health fact to their opinion and it's getting really dangerous. Yeah, and I mean, so the, the internet yeah. has, has, has been problematic in that sphere, but then the internet has been so helpful in terms of the body oh, positivity yes. and fat acceptance yes. movement. So I'm, it's like you get dealt the shit cards with the good yeah, hand yeah, as well. Yeah. well you know, it's really, uh, it's, I'm really interested this week. I've been thinking a lot about the way that body positive ideas are co-opted by the diet industry. That was going to be one of my questions for you. So go ahead. Yes. I, I, well, I literally this week I was walking into my gym and they, you know, they have a new diet program in the gym, which I just walk on by. I mean, there's no gym in the world that there isn't some kind of a weight loss thing in there. So you, on some level, you just have to try to pick the best one. But so I'm, I'm walking by this new program and all of a sudden I stopped because I looked at the sign and it just said in giant letters, love your body. You know what I mean? And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, how is love your body synonymous with starve it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, do you remember? Do you remember? I told you I got. I live in Brooklyn, and I got off the train once, and there was a billboard, and it had a picture of a sad fat person, and they were <laughs> looking at a scale, and it said "lose yourself." Period. And I was like, "Wow!" wow. Like I had to sit and chew on that for a minute because I thought <laughs> this is funny because we could actually spin this into body love. We're like, "Yeah, if you lose weight, you're losing yourself." Like if you force yourself to do something that's not you, yeah. but. Um, but then there was another side where I was like, Oh, whoa, <laughs> what? Right. like we are now wrapping this up with 
with all of you, right? Like your entire identity, your sense of self, like every, like the amount that we have projected on the idea of weight and fat, it's everything. Yeah. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that is regularly contacted to distribute diet products that are, you know, or diet plans that are, you know, under the guise of like getting your body healthy, right? So that we, Mm -hmm. health is sort of become a new word that's hiding that hatred, right? So nourishment and health and absolutely. (laughs) Right. So regularly we get people are like, Hey, we're not about weight loss. So we thought you might want to you know, you know, spread the word about our new program and I'll click on it and go look at it. And I'd be like, you're not about weight loss, except it says here that the great benefit might be that I get thin. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Yes. You know, I, it says, yeah, it, it's especially hard because in fatitude, it's like we really are coming from a conversation of media representation, but we cannot avoid the health. Yeah. We know that everywhere we go, the first question is going to be about health. I mean, that is like all people focus on. And it's so interesting because we do, I mean, we do address it to a certain degree in the film because we have to, but our film is about the roots that constructed what we believe health is or isn't right. Like, I mean, it goes further back Mm -hmm. than whatever scientific facts people feel like they know or have made up from whatever, whoever's told them. I mean, it's, it's a really kind of messy bag. That's that I'm not sure where to be to begin. The thing that's I think really complicated too, is that we do work, you know, it's the attitude, obviously really, in very, very fine detail goes through how we as a culture or Western culture represents fat bodies and how, you know, the great multitude of representations is saying terribly negative things about fat people. And then you get this other category, which we also look at in fatitude, which is things that I would call reality television. And that could be anything from an actual reality television show, like the biggest loser to something like, you know, a talk show like Oprah, right? Where we're being told that we're looking at what's real and we're looking at real misery. And we regularly see people who are expressing real misery who there, who were, it's being cast in sort of a, in a life or death situation, right? Like we're being told that, that if they don't get thin, they're going to die. Or if they, you know, and that, and that this, and the thing is, this is all false, right? Like average fat people go through their lives in a, you know, going through high school like other people, getting a job, having a career, you know, having a relationship, having children, like you still get to have a life and be a fat person. Mm -hmm. You know, what's on television, what's in the media says you don't, but you do, right? Like both Viri and I are fat people and both Viri and I are in long-term committed relationships with people we adore and find sexy, right? Like, (laughs) right, both Viri and I travel and work and have very fulfilling lives in our fat bodies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, and the, and the idea that the media, the media is selling is that that is impossible. That will never happen. Oh, and one of my favorite things that I always share, we have a a creator in our show, in our film who Ash Christian, but he said this great thing where he said, you know, I'm not always the best friend, right? Like they're the tropes that were like, the fat person is always the best friend. He's like, I'm the leading man of my own life. And I always loved that because I thought it's true. Like the things that the media is projecting over and over again, the patterns and the tropes that fat people get pigeonholed in regularly in the narrative are not 
real life. I mean, we all have lives. We all like play. And so we, those roles are kind of the saddest part of course is sending the message to fat people that that's what they're supposed to be or that that's all they can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, the great thing about the body acceptance movement and in fatitude, you know, my favorite thing that Lindsay and I, it was so important to us that we do uh, offer solutions and role models and show a lot of people who are, you know, clearly breaking out of those stereotypes. But, you know, the idea is like, yeah, no, we are, pe- we are the leading, you know, stars of our own lives. And we're doing all of the things that, you know, whatever thin is and all, I mean, we can't, don't get me wrong. Like we can't overlook privilege and that it's still out there. Sometimes I feel like I'm so excited and grateful to be in the body acceptance world, but I forget that a majority is not. I mean, like, still, yeah, like, well, you know, it's you really... always talk about this. Like, we always say, we, like, when we're faced with the real, you know, some parts of America or conversations or read articles, we're like, well, oh, yeah, like, we have yeah, built no. a really little utopia for ourselves. And this is well, not the way I to went to do so a talk. I went to do a talk for us at a, at a, a, a center where they do eating disorder treatment. And, and I was, it was just kind of like a little informal talk with the people who run the, the, program and, and you know it was like 10 people in the room and I showed some footage and I you know whatever and I was talking about the fat kini right the the you know the ba- the bikini for the fat body right and right. I'm having this conversation about it and they're all looking at it and they're like this is amazing and they're like I can't believe this exists and I'm thinking to myself like you can't like it's all over television like right. I can give you a hundred articles about the fat kini you do not know about this mm-hmm. right like and I was baffled because I have created a universe where I miss nothing that is body positive, right? Like my internet feeds it right into my living room and everything that I see is mostly body positive, right? And then, and then I watch TV, right? But like, I was astounded and I, you forget that like not everyone has created that world for themselves. You forget that it's still so countercultural. Yeah. 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 Because <laughs> what's coming your way isn't right. Like yeah. you're. And, and, um, and so, you know, on the, on the heels of that, there's, there's obvious ways in which fat people are discriminated against as it relates to things like healthcare and employment and bullying and and all of those things. But I would love to know what are some of the insidious ways that bodies are discriminated against in our culture that, myself and other people listening can be aware of and and look out for because i think that you know even just even just you talking about how fat people are always um never like the leading role or you know yeah. just things like that like all the narratives in 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 all the different like television shows and movies but i just think not a lot of people are awake to that because it's just it it's just the way that it's always we, been, you know, the, the term that, um, Viri and I tend to use is that it's, it's a, oh, now, now my brain is failing me. What do we always say, Viri? It's an un, unacknowledged what? prejudice or, a, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, totally. Right. So I mean, it's, it's like, it, the, it's the old, like invisible norm. I can't remember the term we use, but it's right. like, yeah, but because absolutely. we don't want, you know, some people say the idea of a, um, that like the last acceptable prejudice and that's ridiculous. Right, There's a ton yes. of acceptable prejudice in the culture. It is not, it, there is lots of acceptable prejudice, but mm-hmm. this is an, an sort of an, an unacknowledged, invisible, right? Yeah. right? It's yeah, like, yeah. It, it's, 
it, people don't even realize that this could be a prejudice. Yes. Right. And so, um, you know, it, for, for us, we found that there are lots of, you know, I, I've written articles about, um, the things that people have said to me or, or, and not even realizing that they're, that they're saying something horrible, right? So I wrote an article for Exo Jane that was uh, that was literally called uh, called "If I Had Your fa- Your Body, I'd Kill Myself" and right. other terrible things that people say to a fat person. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a moment where I was talking to someone, and she was talking about her own eating disorder journey, and she literally looked at me and she went, "I mean, if I had looked like you, I would have killed myself." Right? Yeah. And I thought. I thought, how do you not hear yourself? Like, how did you not hear how horribly mean that was, right? Because the assumption is that I hate my body as much as she hates my body, yeah. right? And so she, she's, and that everyone who is fat hates their body and that they're just, you know, they're just, you know, miserable, right? And, and that they, so that they're going to commiserate with the hate you feel for their body. So uh, the things that I've seen in my life are I have a very thin mother and grandmother. And so people have said things to me like, oh my God, was it a nightmare having a thin mom? Mm. Right. And I'm like, she's amazing. What, what are you talking about? Right. Or, or they'll assume that like, my, like my husband isn't really into me. Like he loves me, but he doesn't like, we don't have a really good sex life. Mm-hmm. Um, or we'll see assumptions like I'll be in the gym and people will be like, Oh, you go girl. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so true that it, the city, I mean, what you were talking about, my first thing that crossed my mind is a lot what Lindsay's talking about, which was going to say, which I was going to say personal interaction. I mean, we definitely, when we, when we do talk about when you were saying leading, you know, you're bringing that back. I think tropes are a big thing. Don't get me wrong. I mean, growing up watching villains always be the fat person and you know, all of that stuff definitely sets some roots, but it, but it's the weird. Yeah. It's the weird dynamic that happens day to day among well, and, your friends yeah. and your loved ones, even people who just don't even realize that what they're saying is, and most of that comes from them believing they are informed and that it's just some kind of health fact that that well, fat yeah. is bad. Um, well, and I, think, so, yeah. I think the worst one though, really is that people regularly fat shame other people in front of fat people. Yes. Right. So yes. you're standing next to someone who you love and care about, right? They're your really good friend and they happen to be fat. You no longer categorize them as a bad fatty. Right. Mm. You in your head, think of them as your amazing friend. And so somebody's walking by who's wearing short shorts. Right. right. And you go, Oh my God, how could she think she can wear that? Right. Right. That's fat shaming. You're fat shaming that girl that's walking by. And you're also shaming the person sitting right next to you, reminding her that she does not deserve to wear those shorts. Right. 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 Like, and, and I mean, I think that and that ha- it happens to me to this day, but people who know that I'm a fat activist who love, 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 and care about me. And they will, you know, do something fat shaming right in front of me. Right. Daily, daily. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? Do you you correct them? I do. Yeah. I always correct. Yeah. I mean, especially if they're people I love. Right. So, um, and, and I think that's probably a really fine point to make that, that fat hatred is so ingrained in the culture that even the people you love are doing it. And you don't oh, have yes. to think that they are bad people because they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Instead, you need to think like these people were educated poorly. They don't really know about this. They don't realize they're hurting me. And I need to be the bigger person in this moment and 
and help them recognize that this is a bad thing they're doing. Yeah, right. right. And you know, yeah, and it doesn't have to be um, a rant or a lecture. The best thing that I do is usually try to turn the moment into a positive or offer an alternative question. Like, like it'd be the the most minor thing as long as you just plant a little flag in that moment. You know, like it's like you don't have to kind of say, listen, you can and should if you want to say I, I thought, that really offended me. But I also will be like, or, you know, and then and, and then yeah. a- insert blank there. Like just, yeah. you know, kind of offer yeah, the alternative. Too. Well, and sometimes yeah. I'll even just look at the if it's a person I really know well, I'll just look at them and be like, really? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, right, and, they'll, right. and they'll be like, oh, my God, you're right. I just did that thing you've already talked to me about. Right. Like and. <laughs> You know, and I right. think, and I think sometimes you, you're in a in a public sphere where you're not with people you love and care about, or that love and care about you, and something terrible happens, and something fat shaming happens, and you're like, you know what, this fight is for another day, and I'm going to walk away today because this is not the moment where I feel like having this conversation, and that's perfectly acceptable too. You don't have to be a warrior every minute. Right. It's right? about managing like, your mental well-being and your yeah, mental health too. Yes, like how much, how much yeah. are you, are you wanting to, how much energy you know, and juice do you have today? And where do yeah, you want to spend absolutely. it? That is so well, important. That is so important. I yeah. always have this conversation with people about like energy transference of yeah. sorts, not like in some weird cosmic way, but literally saying you don't, if we did that all the time, we'd all be drained. Like yeah. we can't, you know, you have to choose your battles, but you also, it's important to have them sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, well, but and, you know, in our film, which it didn't make it to the film because only so much can, we did an interview with Reagan Chastain from dances with fat. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, was training for an iron man when we were interviewing her. And, you know, she said that her reaction, whenever somebody says something like in the gym, somebody says good for you or, or, you know, something to that effect, she always will stop and look at them and in a completely like innocent, you know, almost ignorant way, be like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Right. She, yeah. And that's that always, she, the, yeah. God, I love that. that. She will always that. sort of ask a question. Like if somebody was telling a, you know, a fat phobic joke, she'd be like, could you explain to her? That's funny. I don't get it. Yeah. She's right? amazing. She's so quick on her yeah. feet too. She's been yeah. on the podcast before and yeah. uh, I'll link. Yeah. To this is know. like such a, I'm learning that this is actually a really common way to approach. I did. I worked on this documentary with Greg Luganis, the Olympic diver. And he said that anytime someone asks him anything offensive, he will always approach it as, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't follow. Like that's always the response. And I've learned that this, and then Reagan said it to us. And I thought this is perfect because yeah. when you say something like that, you are not confronting them with why it bothers you. You're forcing them to learn it through their own, their yeah. own way because they're going to have curious. to explain it. Yeah. 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 And, that, mm-hmm. yeah. and it, it forces them to be curious. And it also, as they're explaining it back, they'll hear it. They'll hear mm-hmm. their own words. Mm-hmm. And, uh, especially when they get nervous and don't want to respond, yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay, yeah. so why do you feel uncomfortable? right now clearly something's wrong the other thing too is i I do feel like when you say to most people like hey that's mean like you're you're being mean right that that they most people are like wait a minute i am i'm being mean why didn't i ever notice that before like i i don't i do feel like there's a piece of people that get this that they get that they shouldn't be doing this and that perhaps they need to stop (laughs) you know what i mean like I do think people are open to the idea that we shouldn't be brutal towards fat bodies. Yeah, so, I think I think people are open to the idea that we shouldn't be brutal to anybody. I think I that do it's too. So, you I know agree. so it's like this weird thing that um, what we're well, going back to when we were starting to answer this question. It really is invisible. I mean, people just don't cannot comprehend 
that that's wrong. It's like this weird thing that, I mean, we used to say we're like, you know, in feminism and also especially with fatitude. Oh, I just way, remembered like, what we, I just remembered what we call oh, it. Go we ahead, call go it ahead. an unchecked oh, cultural yes. presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unchecked. Sorry. Totally. And like the other thing <laughs> is we used to always say like, um, you know, it's like being unplugged from the matrix. We we're like, we were unplugged from the matrix. Now we see it everywhere uh, in everything. Fat prejudice, you know, or all of these things we're discussing right now. But so many people are still plugged in and they just like blank faces when you start to explain it to them. Yeah. I mean, I've really learned that you have to explain it in layers. I feel like I'm saying the most simple things in the world that are very logical and common sense. And people look at me dumbfounded or become so agitated and defensive that they can't even hear it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I've realized how deep this is. I mean, this is deep. Yeah. And I I would love to talk because I think what, you know, what we're talking about here is a lot to do with, um, with thin privilege and not acknowledging it, you know, and not understanding that. And so I would love to know your thoughts on why understanding thin privilege and size discrimination is so important for women who are trying to stop hating their bodies. Well, I, you know, so thin privilege is a thing, right? So yeah, I, we have a tendency as a culture when we to say the word privilege and people are like, you know, and yes, the re- the, right. And the reality of it is then pr- privileges exist and you didn't do anything mean to anyone to have them. They exist. The culture defines them. So I was born a white person. That means I have a lot of privilege with being born a white person. And I, I didn't, I didn't do anything mean to anyone. I didn't, I'm not a bad person because I have privilege. I just do. I can't, you can't change it. Right. I am afforded certain benefits based on the color of my skin because the culture privileges my skin over different colored colors of skin. Right. Right. Like that's just a fact. So that is true of thin bodies. Thin bodies have certain privileges that fat bodies do not have. That, it's a cultural thing, right? So Melissa Fabello explains it really well in Fatitude. She says, if I'm a thin person hating the crap out of my body, and I'm on the beach, and I'm eating an ice cream cone, and I'm feeling all kinds of guilty, and I feel really bad, and I'm, everything is terrible, and I hate myself, no one on the beach is looking at me and thinking, ew, look at that disgusting thin girl eating an ice cream cone. Mm, yes. Right? When you are a fat woman sitting on the beach eating an ice cream cone, absolutely, there are probably people looking at you being like, I can't believe that fat lady is eating an ice cream cone. She does not deserve to eat an ice cream cone. Right? Yes. yes. This, is, this is the idea of thin privilege, right? That there are certain benefits to being thin where you're not being judged in the same ways that somebody who is fat is. And so what that means is if I go to a job, the thin person is going to be assumed productivity and, and willpower and, and uh, a lack of laziness are assumed in the thin body, whereas the fat body is assumed to be lazy, assumed to lack organization, assumed to lack willpower. So if you're the hiring person and you're not, your mind isn't open to the privileges that exist in culture, you are going to sort of from a subconscious level hire the thin person over the fat person because you have these um, assumptions about thin bodies and that you lay over thin bodies and assumptions that you lay over fat bodies that drive you to believe the thin person will be better at the job. Yeah. And these are the deeper root prejudice. I mean, what Lindsay's talking about is like even a more advanced version of this conversation beyond, 
you know, airplane seats and clothing. Yeah. I mean, these yes. are bigger issues that make it the civil rights issue we're talking about. You know, right. like these are right. right. So. right. Those pri- those privileges Beery's talking about are just, just the basic ones. Like, well, no, and that's fit, what everybody always says first. Yeah, right. right. You yeah. don't you don't fit in a school desk, right? You go to school, and there are no gym uniforms in your size. You. Yeah. Right. You, I mean, these are and that just, stuff matters. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. Day-to-day life matters. Don't, yeah. that is definitely probably more affecting to people on a personal level. But what you have to realize is that there's even bigger structural societal things happening that don't allow uh, free movement, you know, or, you know, all of that stuff. And that's what Lindsay's talking about, which is so true, which is, can, that is numbered. The stats are out there. The research has been done. I mean, that discrimination is real mm-hmm. uh, in jobs and in, um, you know, oh God, I mean, it's, there's so there's this conversation is like, uh, in books, there are books on this. Right. I mean, but, yeah. but we talk about, uh, we have Virgie in our, in our, uh, movie, she talks about like, well, if you tell me your zip code, I could probably tell, you know, if you tell me your BMI, I could tell you a zip code, you know I mean? It's like, there's so many conversations yeah. of access and discrimination and yeah. how people are dealt with that. It just kind of goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the roots of, uh, you know, it's cyclical. I, I'm now so, starting to lose well, myself in words here. Yeah. But Lindsay, save me. But yeah. well, so the <laughs> so the thing the thing that happens, of course, is if we're talking about everyone trying to strive to achieve thin privileges, first of all, there's a belief that you can, right? That you can get thin, and you and if you just get thin, everything will magically be full of privilege and full of joy, right? Okay, so that's a lie. And then on top of that lie, you have this idea that if you can't get there, it's sort of your own fault. Like you, you're a bad, it's your fault. You're fat because it's your fault. Uh, not your genetics, not your, you know, income and ability. Choice. It's your choice. Right. So, and you have all these different factors sort of at play condemning your body. And so you see a lot of people who just try to starve themselves to achieve thin privilege. And this is of course why Viri and I do this work because the problem cannot be solved that way. Right. So you can't on an individual level, change your body and everybody becomes thin and everybody becomes happy. What we need to do is change the culture so that people recognize that that achieving thin privilege is not going to allow you joy. What we need to do is shift the culture away from privileging thin bodies or or privileging white bodies or right. So or any other category or privileging heterosexual bodies. Right. Like we need to shift the culture away. We need to represent privilege in all bodies. So Barry and I said this morning, we're talking about Ghostbusters and how we right. really liked the film and we really liked the film, not because we think it's a great film. We kind of think it's a, it's a, a B, it's, yeah. it gets a yeah, B, right? Yeah. It gets a B level film. But what we really liked about it is it's kind of like you just pulled the male actors out of the roles and put female actors in the roles. And that way, little girls watching that are not forming assumptions about what men can do versus what women can do, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in terms of thin bodies and fat bodies. We want to represent fat bodies just being regular, just going to work and just having friends and being in a relationship so that we can recognize that the privilege of living a normal life can happen on all bodies with it within all bodies mm-hmm. right like yeah people like, always ask us they're like what's your salute what's the solution what's the solution <laughs> and it's complicated but as much as we do hate the word you know quote-unquote normal it really is normalizing body yeah. everybody yeah. doing everything all the right. time and so everywhere you, you don't, right you don't want to say like oh fat people can't be the villain or fat people can't be the joke you want to say 
Well, fat people can be the villain and they can be the joke once I also see them being the romantic lead and being, right? So as long as right. they're doing everything, equal, equal parts, right? Right, right. Yeah, yes. all the time, everywhere. And that will, and that's like applicable to everything. But like, it's really true. And that will change everything because, you know, it's the whole, if you see it, you can be it. But once things become pigeonholed or you only see it in one place, then you're like, oh, that's clearly what it is. And that's not true. You know, it's just not true when it comes to fat bodies. But that's where the media, I mean, bringing back to fat dude, our whole thing is like, yeah, show it. If you're watching varying bodies, I mean, that's what Ghostbusters, I'm so sensitive to that stuff now, clearly because of my fanitude stuff. But watching that, I thought, all of these women are so different. Like it was just really fun to kind of watch such different yep. women in in the space moving and talking and leading a film. Yeah. So, which is clearly you know the the, the greatest pitch of Ghostbusters, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, well, I am. I I also had a really. I, I was saying this this morning too. I had a really good fat positive moment. I really liked that the you know, that the Melissa McCarthy character was dealing with getting her wonton soup correctly. And so she would get it with too few wontons. And then she'd get angry about it having too many wontons. And you know what I mean? And just like the idea that we could have a fat person having an issue with food and that was just completely normalized. It wasn't like a fat person shoving food in their face. It was a fat person interacting with food in a normal, frustrated way. Like, I right, don't know. Just get just, my order right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. And it's right. so it's so refreshing, and it's so sad that that's refreshing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes. always, <laughs> we always get excited and, like, start the parade about something good, and then immediately, like, the horns kind of fizzle out, and right. the record stops, and you're like, why are we having a parade? Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a vicious cycle. Yeah, it's, cra- but, it's yeah. crazy that one thing like soup can just be like, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's okay. true, and it's so needed, and I think it is it is all those little things along the way. Yeah. I, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, well, I, that's I it. Just, it's a long journey. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love, I love you guys. I, I feel like we could talk for like at least <laughs> fifteen more hours. Um, but I really want, I want to make sure that we have some time for you guys to really talk about the movie. Um, you know, what, what can we do to help support it? I know that this is a uh, labor of love and labor of, I'm yeah. sure, blood, sweat, and tears for you guys. So talk, talk to me about the movie. Talk to me about how people can right. help, donations, everything like Yay. that. I mean, real yeah. quick before Lindsay puts on her <laughs> incredible producer hat, before she does that, <laughs> let me just say, uh, I, and I always, it's important for me to say this every time we get an amazing opportunity like this to kind of talk to, talk to everyone. We re- this is a labor of love. Like, we are not getting paid. I work, you know, we work. I have a full-time job. I'm cutting Fatitude at 5 in the morning before I go to work, you know, or overnights on the weekends. Like, any time we get... And so everything, every piece of support, every time people share it, every quarter or a dollar or anything anybody can give is what's making fatitude happen right now because we are not like we we are it's a blood sweat and tears game and it's just the two of us i mean we have we have incredible interns who are helping us as well but i was sitting there recently with somebody at a table and they said so how so like how big is your operation or like how many how many um, employees do you have or something like that? And I was like, oh my god, talking about of like there's two of us, and they were like, what? What? Like and people don't? I don't think people realize that. Um, so you know, before Lindsay says of all, all the beautiful things she's about to say, 
I'll just have to reiterate that it really is the two of us and some wonderful people who are donating their time just like we are to make this happen. So now that we're like nearing the end and, you know, Lindsay's going to say all that, but now that we're nearing the end, every, every cent counts, every help counts, every share counts, because we're about to hit the launch button on this thing. And it's, I could not be more excited. So it's been a lot of, it's been a really long, hard journey, but it all came from uh, absolute passion. Mm -hmm. Absolute passion. And it's so needed. It's so needed. So Lindsay, take it away there. (laughs) Um, No pressure. So So, gratitude is in what we call the rough cut stage. So we have reached the point where we have actually have a film that's 90 minutes long. That is really the foundation for the, what the film will be. Um, that is a magical moment for Viri and I, we, it's taken us a long time to get here and it's something that we feel really proud of, but it's also the moment that means that we've just, we've literally just landed on the trampoline that takes us from, Oh, we were spending a little money to, Oh God, we're about to spend a whole lot of money. So, um, this is a point where, where every dollar counts is a totally factual statement. We are definitely still raising money to complete fatitude right now. We're heading into hiring a composer an illustrator, a graphics person. We're hiring a sound editor, right? So all these sort of finishing elements that go with film. Uh, these are the, you know, the, the high polish of the kinds of films you watch on the theater screens. That's what we're headed into now. So the filming is done. The film is cut. Now it needs to be polished. Right. Polishing is the most expensive part of making a film. So we are polishing and we have some funds left, but we need some more. So anyone who feels like gratitude is worthy of getting out into the world, if you've got a dollar to share, we will will take it no humbly. Right? So um, small donations are the way that we've made gratitude happen. So we have, I, I, I can't tell you factually that we have more small donations than any film ever made, but it feels like that. <laughs> it feels right? like that. I mean, we had like so, a Kickstarter had like triple the backers of anybody I've ever known. Uh, sense right, of like, yeah. yeah. Raising yeah, that much we, money. Yeah, absolutely. Our average donation is well below the average donation of, uh, you know, traditional films. So traditional films, average donations of about $45. Gratitude averages donations somewhere about 20. Okay. Uh, we've raised just as not as much money as other films, but we've just raised it from really not from any large private donations. We've raised our money from independent people who are like, I want to see this happen. Here's my $10. Here's my $50. Here's my $20. Right. So, um, I sound like Bernie Sanders right now. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's been, and that's been really magical because we feel that our fan base is really involved and they really get it, right? So we're making a film for a magical group of people who really believe in this film and what this film has to say. And it's been an overwhelming experience for Viri and I because we get love letters all the time from people who are saying things like, I watched your seven minute trailer and this film has to be made because I spent the first 60 years of my life hating myself. And today watching this trailer, I realize I have another option. Yes. Uh, these letters and these letters like make me cry. Cause I think about like, we're making the film for you. Like we're making the film right. for us. We're making the film for every person who's right. And you just sit there and you're like, Oh, I can't wait for you to see it. Like it's yes. just one of the, it's just a right. gift for ever for us too. Right. You know I mean? It's like, Our- it, our Ugh. goal for Fatitude, though, is not just to sort of preach to our choir, right? So yeah. our goal has always been mass distribution. We'd like to see Fatitude really get out there on a, on a you know, 
and reach people who don't yeah. get this, right? Yes. So uh, that means that rather than just kind of go and some, you know, like find distribution in a way that's sort of direct on demand, we're really looking for distribution through a film festival so that we can talk about legitimate sort of Hollywood distribution and, you know, in theater viewings, mm-hmm. right? Um, that, of course, means that Fatitude's polish has to be really beautiful. And in order to make that happen, we absolutely still need more money. So the way that you can donate to Fatitude is that we donations, we have donations, we take donations through our website. So that's FatitudeTheMovie.com. We also have a donation link on our uh, Facebook page, and we're Fatitude the Movie, I think, on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and our donations go through either we have a do- some donations set up on our Facebook page where we have some like Fatitude gift stuff that we'll send you, and those donations are not tax deductible. So if you want to get like Fatitude post its or Fatitude dingle hoppers, we have these hearts that pop <laughs> up, or, or a Fatitude keychain, you can buy those, and the cost of the keychain is sort of expensive because you're not just buying a keychain you're also donating to Fatitude. So that is available on our website, as well as tax-deductible larger donations, which go through IFP. Uh, here it was, IFP. Which is the Independent independent Film Project. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So uh, they go through IFP, who are our fiscal sponsor, and those are, those are tax-deductible donations. So if you were making a donation of something like $150 or perhaps $1,000 because you're awesome, <laughs> and I'd love to find you wherever you are. We can, I'll write you a personal note. Send me a thousand dollars. So I'll call you on the phone even. Um, <laughs> so no, but if you're making a larger donation, you can literally de- deduct it from your taxes by donating through IFP. And that can also be found on our website at attitudethemovie.com. Okay. Amazing. Aaron, and what's the timeline on the release? Uh, uh, let me, oh God, can I just say, I, I can't, she said we have like the rough gun we do, or even a step beyond that. But I, um, I, we, the, God, I am so excited that we are right now on a timeline to finish this film this fall and start submitting. Uh, but if we do submit this fall, what that would mean is that we're looking at festivals that are happening after, after the new year into right. the spring. Mm-hmm. So when we start, so depending on where we get in, that will start the journey of actually screening the film for audiences, but doing it through the festival, as, as Lindsay was saying, is so important because it has the Q and a factor. Yes. I mean, being able to have the conversation when people digest the film and really be able to uh, not control the conversation, but help usher in what we, what we're hoping accompanies the film in the long run, uh, is a big deal. So that's why we want to do the festival thing. So, so if we, if we finish the film in the fall, then we're still submitting, which takes a process that would have us on screens, uh, in the spring in festivals around the country. So, right. Am I right, Lindsay? That's pretty, yes. I mean, that's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Would it be available so, yeah. in the interim through purchasing through the website or anything like that? Or, or would that mean that it's, it's held off for full release? Yeah. That's right? just not the way it works. Yeah. So we wish we yeah, could distribute yeah. it. Um, mm. most of the larger festivals. So if you're talking about festivals that people have heard, so Toronto and Sundance and Cannes and, uh, why I'm failing, I'm missing, oh, Tribeca, right? So these film festivals that, you know, that are the top tier of film festivals in the country. If you're talking about those film festivals, in order to show your film at that festival, it has to be a world, world premiere. Okay. So Got we it. cannot immediately so, I mean, I mean, in the dream, I mean, that's our dream to get one of the top tiers. So that's our right. first shot. Um, 
Because that would get the most main main audience for sure. Right. Following that, Fatitude will be available in a way that's um, for purchase, right? So, Oh, yeah. I mean, like after we do a festival run or depending on how it goes, because if we go to a festival, the idea is that distributors are there as well. So people will start engaging in conversations with us about how they see it. But no matter what, um, you know, we'll find it will be available. It just probably won't happen to, you know, in the sense of outside of a festival capacity till spring or summer next year. But, but in the meantime, the idea is to literally take it on tour on festivals. So the greatest thing about that is that come spring, if all goes well, we definitely want to come to a town near any, everybody and have them come to the theater, watch the film and have a great Q and a, I mean, and then, yeah. And then have it available after that. Hopefully word will spread and anybody who couldn't get to a theater or we couldn't get to them, um, you know, we'll be able to see it in another capacity. Amazing. Amazing. Well, um, I'm going to go donate. I'm not, I'm not kidding. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to go donate right now. It'll be more than more than a dollar for sure. Um, <laughs> and hopefully maybe I'll be that thousand dollar person at some point, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah right, I right. would encourage everyone listening to this to please go because it, it, it is, it, it, it's, it's so needed. It's so needed for our, our culture and, and just, you know, selfishly, if you're trying to feel better in your body, we need this fucking message out there. Like you need it. So please support this. It's really, really important. Um, and so I'm going to link to all the stuff in the show notes, but just remember fatitudethemovie.com, but this will be at summerinandin.com forward slash FRR dash seven zero. Cause this is episode 70 Lindsay and Viri, Thank you so much. Maybe we'll have you guys back on again in the spring when the real, um, Yay. when the worldwide totally. release, because we're manifesting it and the yes. film festival release. <laughs> and I may have just like deafened somebody with my <laughs> raised voice there. <laughs> Um, happens. We'll, we'll have you guys back on again. I, I really love chatting with you. There was so much more I wanted to talk about. So I just really appreciate your time. I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I hope that it's an incredible success for you and, uh, I'll do what I can to support it. So thank you ladies so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you you very much. Rock on. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode and that you will run out to check out the movie Fatitude. And you can find a link to that in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash 145. I'll be back with another classic episode in a couple weeks. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, Go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.